You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. We'll be reading from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 7. So that's 1 Thessalonians, second chapter starting with the seventh verse, and it reads thusly. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. With you this morning as we continue our way through the book of First Thessalonians. Again, let me just add my welcome if you're a guest joining us this morning. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, my name's Will, if we've never uh, met before. And um, let me just invite all of us to, to now pray, uh, to pray as we consider this passage. I think this passage is so timely for us as a church, but even like culturally, I think there's some significant things in here. So I'm still praying about it. We might even hit it again next week, but we'll see. Let's just do one week at a time. Uh, We'll start with this one and then we'll go from there. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer this morning is that you would continue to make the people of this church look like what we read in this passage. The tenderheartedness the sharing of not only the gospel, but our our very selves, our lives, the sharing of our lives with one another. I pray that we would model and exemplify the hard work that Paul offered to the church. I pray that we would walk with just integrity and righteous character like he describes. And finally, Lord, I pray that this place could just be a, a conduit of the gospel, that the gospel would flow from this place into this city and beyond. Lord, would you make us the kinds of people described in this passage? Would you meet us specifically? Holy Spirit, would you enlighten your words specifically to where we need to hear it this morning? Lord, we love you, we worship you, we offer ourselves to you as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me ask if you've ever stepped into a building or a structure, some kind of piece of architecture that just took your breath away. Uh, just the, the sight, the, the structure was so staggering, so incredible, you just had to stand back amazed. Maybe some of you have been to the Sistine Chapel. Maybe others of you in the room have uh, you know, been to Dubai, perhaps, and seen the, the massive structures that are over there. There may be even some of you that have visited Manassas Mall um, and, and, uh, and taken, taken that, that in. Um, I don't know what comes to mind or what kinds of buildings you've been to that have really amazed you, 
But something that often comes to, to mind when you see an amazing structure is what sort, of, what sort of person could build something like this? What sort of person could build something like this? My hope and prayer would be that when people walk into our church, that they would be so taken back that they would say to themselves, what sort of person, what sort of people build something like this? And of course, as I talk about the church, I'm not talking about our building. This is not a building campaign launch. Uh, This is a school. The setup team does an incredible job with it, but I don't know that this building, give them a hand, they do an incredible job. But like, I don't know that you were like, your breath was taken away when you walked into this, to this gymnasium. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about the church, the real church, the people of God, and the lives that they live together. My prayer is that the lives of God's redeemed people in this church would be so unusual, so filled with God, so overflowing with love for one another, so filled with compassion for the city that we live in, that people would be left asking, what sort of person builds something like this? And our obvious answer, uh, even if this is your first time in church, like we recognize, it is Jesus who builds the church. Jesus says, Matthew 16, on this rock, I will build my church. He speaks in the singular. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Any true church uh, has Jesus as the one who's responsible for building it. But we also understand that he uses humans as instruments to build the church. He uses ordinary people like you and me as instruments to to, to build the church. And so um, what God had done in Thessalonica that we're witnessing 2,000 years later is that he had built a breathtaking church. And he used the apostle Paul as the instrument to do it. And what Paul does continuously in this passage is he puts himself forward as an example for the type of person who builds breathtaking churches. The type of person that builds churches, leaving people asking, what sort of people, what sort of person could build something like this? And I hope we are compelled by his example to be the same sort of people as we uh, build this church. And uh, let me just, as an aside, say like why this is especially significant. Maybe you're hearing me talk about building churches and you're thinking, okay, like check out a little bit because this must be a message for like professional ministers or church planters or stuff like that, but we have to recognize that any church worth being a part of is so because of the people who build it, uh, the, the, the people who are in the midst of it. And this should especially stand out to us, I think, at this moment culturally, because I think all of us would recognize that our culture has been and continues to be in a season of decline and decay. And probably every generation sort of looks at the culture around them and says, wow, things are not great out there. Um, and it's, it's never, there hasn't been some great day when everything was perfect. But I think we could certainly recognize uh, in really any sector of society right now, really name the sector of society, and I think we could look and say, things are not going well. So back to the question, why is it so important that we would build, be the kinds of people that build the churches that I'm describing? Here's why. Because healthy churches build healthy families, and healthy families build healthy communities, and healthy communities form and fill 
and create healthy nations. Not utopia, not, not places that are perfect, uh, but, but certainly uh, they, church, churches have an influence as salt and light uh, to, to, to foster change and health and goodness in society. And as things are declining rapidly, we need people to step up to the table and say, I, I want to be a part of not just pointing out and saying, look how terrible it is out there, but let's work hard at building the kinds of churches uh, that will uh, be a city on a hill in the midst of a declining culture. And so what kinds of people, what characteristics accompany the, the, the people that build healthy churches? Uh, again, Paul is the example here. He has a lot for us to learn from. What I want to observe with you are four characteristics, I think, that he puts forward in this passage. Four characteristics that I think we need to embody uh, as we continue to build this church. So what kind of people build healthy churches? Number one, people with soft hearts. Let me read verse 7 one more time. Verse 7 and 8. Paul speaking says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready not only to share with you the gospel of God, but our very selves because you had become very dear to us. Soft hearts. In the Old Testament, the, the people were described as having what kinds of hearts? Hearts of stone. Uh, in the New Testament, when Jesus is describing the last days, the days that we're living in after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, when Jesus was describing people in the last days, he says, in the last days, the hearts of many will turn cold, hard, cold, lifeless, unmoved, unconcerned, unaffectionate. That's the world that we live in around us. Uh, we are to be set apart with soft, sensitive affectionate hearts. Now, let's unpack how Paul describes it here in this passage. First of all, he says that he was gentle among you. And that gentleness doesn't necessarily apply to being like delicate. That's not the point of it. It, it applies to this gentle relational kindness towards people. In other words, it's not an abstract gentleness. It's a gentleness that exercises itself relationally. Paul says, I was gentle among you. Uh, it has implications of kindness towards people, and he illustrates the kind of gentleness that he has with this picture of a mother nursing her own children. Is there a, a more vivid picture of someone with just compassion and affection and gentleness towards another human being? This is not abstract. It's expressed towards people. It's, it's a gentleness, a kindness that wants other people to be nurtured, cared for, uh, longs that they would grow uh, and become the people that God has originally designed them to be. And I think this would be especially true for people who are struggling. I think any mother is going to have this spirit of gentleness towards her children in, a, in, a, in normal circumstances. But when, it, when a child is struggling, when a child is maybe screaming at the top of their lungs or even going through some kind of issue in their life, that's when that gentleness is activated and, and used all the more. That's, that's the picture that Paul gives here of, of the, the gentleness described. And then he, he uses even more intense language later. He says, after describing a mother with her children, he says, being so affectionately desirous of you. Uh, in other words, you could say that is uh, having so longed for you. 
affectionately desirous of you. When Paul showed up in Thessalonica and he saw the people in that city, his heart was moved with intense longing for those people. Longing that they would know God, longing that they would be saved from their sins, longing that they would be made into new creations uh, uh, through the, the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. He had intense longing for those people. Um, and then it says that he, this, this longing led him to a way of life. He says, being so affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to not only share the gospel. I love this line. I love this next line. We were ready to not only share the gospel with you, but our very selves. Our very selves. Uh, he's saying, I was, I was not just preaching to you, I was with you in relationship. I made myself available, open, accessible to the church in Thessalonica. You had my time, energy, interest. Why? He finally says at the bottom of verse 8, like, why this uh, uh, intense involvement in their lives? And he says, again, this picture of a soft heart, because you had become very dear to us. As, as Paul looked at the people in Thessalonica, as he looked in the people of the church, he has intense longings. He, he says that, that they, were, they became very dear to him. So what kind of people build healthy churches? First and foremost, people with soft hearts. People who don't just look past the people around them. People who see other people. Uh, people who, who notice them and are moved with compassion and longing and hurting and struggling uh, uh, for, for, for people in these situations. Let me just like make an aside note that might be an encouragement to some of you. Where do these kinds of people come from that have these sorts of intense longings for other human beings? Just selfless love and compassion. Can I tell you where this sort of person usually comes from? These types of people have usually been forged through suffering of their own. People who feel deeply for struggling people are usually those who have struggled deeply themselves. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians is a book all about Paul's sufferings. And he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the God of all mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So Paul says, I've been in affliction and I've received the comfort of God. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. What kinds of people have just soft um, affectionate, longing hearts towards other human beings. It's usually those who have been through some deep places of pain in their own life, and they're now able to extend those to others. I say that to just maybe provide some light and some encouragement of perhaps suffering and difficulty that you might be facing in your life right now to recognize that, that God intends to use that um, in other people's lives down the road if you would open yourself up to receive his comfort for you in the midst of it. He's forging you into the kind of person that Paul is describing here. Someone with tender-hearted, kind, affectionate people. Who, who do I think of in our midst when I think of these first two verses? Man, uh, I'm just going to call out some people and they're not prepared for it. The people that capture me with, with verse 7 and 8 here are Carly and Evan Reilly. Uh, if you know them, you know this is it. Man, I, what I love about Evan is that uh, 
like he is exactly this. He uses this intense language. So uh, all of his like male relationships, he makes them slightly uncomfortable because at the end of every interaction, he always says, not with just like, hey, love you, bro, but like, I love you. Like, like he, he, he makes sure that his, his affection for the people in his life are clearly known. You know this couple. They don't just see people who are homeless, people who are struggling and move past them, uh, or even see them as a project. They see them as human beings made in the image of God. And when they see people struggling, their hearts overflow with compassion for them. That's why hurting people are always showing up at their house, uh, sometimes unexpected. That's why they've served as deacons of community advocacy, where they would come alongside hurting people in their city and help them, and engaged in foster care. And now Carly's leading um, uh, Foster the Family, where they're helping equip and, and resource foster families. Like, they themselves have received the mercy and comfort of God in the midst of their affliction, and now they are moved with this, this type of intense longing that we see here described in First Thessalonians. You see, struggling people, and they have tender, sensitive hearts for their wholeness. Uh, these are people who, who the types of people who um, see people where they're at, understand their pain and their burdens, and they have longings that they would be whole and set free. And so here's the question that I'm just going to lay on all of us for a few moments to consider. Has the last two years done some damage to your heart posture towards people? Have, have the last two years done some damage towards your heart posture towards people? It could show up, I think, in a couple ways. One, through the lie that, like, you can kind of exist on your own uh, and, like, whenever necessary, engage with a human through a screen uh, but, but by and large, like, you can just be on your own. I hope you just hear Paul's, Paul's example here, where he says, like, he could have done something. If Zoom were around, he could have given them the gospel over Zoom. He says, like, we were ready to not only share the gospel with you. That could have done, been, happened at a distance, very impersonally. He says, we also shared our very selves. He had proximity, relationship closeness to other people? Do you see your need right now to be in the presence of other believers? Has the past couple years done some damage to that area of your, of your Christian walk? And let me just encourage you as we're going to continue, as we are launching community groups, that would be a great way to step out of isolation and to do what Paul says, share your life with other, other people. And then maybe the deeper question that I have for you, aside from just your presence with people, is um, has your heart posture towards people just changed in general? Like in, it says in the last days, the hearts of many will grow cold. Has the drama, the coldness, the bickering, the vilifying changed your heart posture towards people? Do you need to take on this kind, tender-hearted posture that Paul is describing here? Let me tell you, the, the only way to do it, you can learn a little from Paul's example. The only way to actually be changed, though, is to realize the kind, gentle, tender-hearted posture that God has towards you in Christ. To know that, like, he should have turned his heart from you and shut you off a long time ago, and yet he remains engaged, interested, um, kind, gentle, and tender-hearted towards you even now. Even now. So what kind of people plant healthy, build healthy churches? People with soft hearts. And number two, people with calloused hands. Soft hearts, 
calloused hands. Don't make the mistake for a second that as I describe these tender-hearted people, that they just sit around philosophizing, drinking chai lattes. These are people with tender lattes, tender, ten, not tender lattes, <laughs> tender hearts, but black coffee from, from a gas station, okay? That's the kind of people that, that we're talking about here. These are people who work hard, who work really, really hard. Verse 9, right after Paul's describing his heart towards the Thessalonians. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, how we worked night and day. Do you hear like the repetition there? I'm going to say, I, I, I put in my hours and I clocked out and I was gone. He says, I labored and I toiled. I did it during the day and I did it at nighttime. I was working overtime. He was on that coffee. He worked hard, tender heart, calloused hands. Now, why did Paul work so hard? Did Paul struggle, as some of us do, with workaholicism? Is that how you say it? Was he a workaholic? Did he get involved into some sketchy uh, cryptocurrency and lost a bunch of money and needed to work really hard to, to get out of that? Like, why did Paul work so hard? Was it for personal gain? No, I love his motivation for working hard. Continue reading. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. What Paul's describing is here is sort of his missionary approach, that he was a tent maker. So he would preach and make disciples with part of his life, and another part of his life, he would work with his hands, building tents. And, and what, I, what I don't want to do is unpack necessarily Paul's missionary like, approach right now. That's not the thing I want to focus on. What I simply want to focus on is what motivated him. He did not work really hard for personal gain. He worked really hard, get this, to lift burdens off of other people. Um, maybe I'll get into this some more next week, but and I'll just say this to men specifically. Broken and wicked men create burdens. Godly men lift them. They lift them. They don't just take care of their own stuff. Godly men, and women included, lift burdens off of other people. That's what the Apostle Paul did, and he did it through hard work. Hard work. Um, someone once said, tired people rule the world. And I think that's probably true. Even wicked rulers, whoever's having an influence out in the world, you're probably tired to some degree. And there's measures of unhealthy tiredness. That's certainly true. But for, for churches to, to impact the world, there is a degree of hard work, not for personal gain, but so that uh, burdens would be lifted off of other people. I think of a, I think of a couple people here. The most obvious that, that comes to my mind is my father-in-law. So this is how he lives his life. He spends like, gets up very early, goes to work, and basically every other moment of his life is spent making something or fixing something that his incompetent son-in-laws can't do. Um, so, so uh, you know, he, he's right now, he's working on something for a, one of his, the more incompetent son-in-law. Let me just say that. Um, that could be debated later. But, uh, man, I, I remember a time in my, like, my, my family was having a hard time with some stuff, and, like, just something that one little issue that they had to deal with was like their, their deck was rotting and falling apart. And like, I wanted to do something about that to, to fix it. And so uh, like, I would have created more problems. Like I would, have, I would have created more problems. And so I just said, hey, would you be able to just give me some pointers? Instead, what he did was he went into work really early, got off a little early, uh, drove up to Loudoun County in 200 degree humidity. Uh, and we fixed a deck for no payment, like just to, just to do it, to lift a burden 
to lift a burden off of someone else. He did it. We probably drank all of the Gatorade in Loudoun County uh, uh, from the, the sweat and the heat from that moment, but he worked really hard. Let me tell you somebody else you might know that, that fits this description, he, and he really loves attention. Stephen Paul. Um, <laughs> man, he's here every Sunday, either setting up production, running cables all over this building, um, uh, or if he's not running production, he's like here just on the side assisting the people who are so that burdens wouldn't be laid on them. He wants to make sure he does that. He works really hard all week, and then every Wednesday night he shows up at the Georgetown South Community Center to lead our youth ministry, uh, where I'm sure there's other things. I know he enjoys it, but there's probably some other things he would love to be doing in those moments, but there he is, just there uh, lifting burdens, working hard to lift burden. So again, what kinds of people build strong, healthy churches? People with calloused hands, people who work hard. How does this apply to our church right now? Here's how I think it applies to our church right now. What I want to give you is not a word to like call you up. What I want to give you is just a word of encouragement. Uh, when Shuey showed up at New City, you know, he's coming as, a, as an outsider coming in, and like one of the first thing he noticed is like, man, the people here serve. Uh, like the people here work really hard for the church. This is, this is not by any means a lazy church body. You, you guys work really hard, whether it's making Sunday happen, whether it's some of the things going on throughout the week. Like this is a church that steps up to serve. And, and you just need to hear like, man, well done. I'm proud of you for that. Like I'm proud that that's an area that we just excel in. And so my, my call from this is not like work harder, like, Make it better in here. Like, you know, that, that's, that, no, the, 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 the question I have for you is like, one, recognizing you work hard. Here's my question. Are you tired? Are you tired from the things you have going on at home, uh, the, what you're doing there, the things you have going on at work, and then what you do here for the church? If you're tired, I just want you to hear from uh, Galatians chapter 6, just a word of encouragement to you. It says exactly what Paul is after here in 1 Thessalonians. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are a church that bears burdens. You are a church that serves, that, 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 that works hard. Now, if you're weary in that, later in verse 9, he says the following. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's times for rest and stepping back, and that's totally recognizable if you need that. But I just simply want you to hear is that there is, uh, there is significance on the other end of your serving. It's not for nothing. It matters. And we don't know, like the most um, common illustration for like ministry work is usually farming. And like, I would not be good at farming because I want immediate results. Like plant it, what's there tomorrow? That's not how farming works. It's slow, long work where you don't immediately see it. But there is a harvest on the other end of that work. And I, I just want you to hear if you are working hard and tired right now, that there is a harvest in that. And, and then he concludes this section in, in Galatians by saying, so... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's, let's keep building those calluses. Uh, let's have soft hearts that, that move us to work hard uh, for people. Number three, what kinds of people build healthy churches? People with blameless character. Blameless character. We can have really tender hearts. We can work really hard and have calloused hands. It will all be in vain if we contradict it with hypocritical lives. So Paul first describes his message. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. But then he goes on to describe his way of life that confirmed rather than contradicted his message. He says at the end of verse 9, while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, verse 10, 
you are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. Do you hear the threefold repetition there? Holy, righteous, blameless conduct. His gospel living did not undo his gospel preaching. There was integrity, righteous living, blameless conduct that followed the message he proclaimed. And honestly, I know many of us may even still be reeling from the multitude of celebrity Christians, celebrity pastors, who have contradicted their message with their hidden sin. And it's devastated maybe you personally in some ways, the church broadly in a lot of ways. And I hope maybe that it helps us, it teaches us that the words celebrity and pastor don't belong in the same sentence. Maybe that, that's a helpful thing for all of us to learn. Um, but maybe what the world needs more of than extraordinarily gifted people on stages are just very ordinary Christians in churches, neighborhoods, with soft hearts, calloused hands, and then a way of life that does not contradict the message that they proclaim. Maybe that's what the world needs. Maybe the world needs, my example here is just men like Joe Cooper. I've served as an elder with him for the past several years. I've known him for the, closely for the past six and seven years. And like I realized that only Jesus was sinless. Um, if there were, and, and it's a long way for the next, the next kind of person in line, I would put my money on Joe being the next in line. Because I've walked with him for all these years through intense suffering that he's walked through. And it's not just that what I see in Joe is like a, like there's no big sins, no like big problems in his life. Like I've never seen Joe complain, slander anyone. Um, like like with that word blameless, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're perfect, but it's like I can't identify something in your life that, that's this like glaring area that just needs repentance, that needs, that needs holiness. And it, um, so with that, what I w- just want to ask you is not, not this morning, are, are you perfect all of us have, have flaws. All of us are still fighting off remaining sin in our life. But is there perhaps a significant area of what just Paul would call blame, transgression, sin? You know, something that if people were to find out would be a great shock, a great scandal to you? Is there something in your life that would contradict the, the, the walk with Jesus that you proclaim to have, something glaring, something obvious. What I, what I want to encourage you with that, this is not to like slam you, but to, to encourage you with these words. It is always, always, always a million times better to confess and acknowledge and get help than to be found out. It always is, as hard or as difficult as that is. And so if there's some obvious area in your life that is out of step with, with God's will for your life, that, that even maybe the Lord's speaking to you right now about. Can I just encourage you before you go to bed tonight to find someone to bring that to the light to because that will be so much more redemptive, so much more healing for you than the current tra- tra- trajectory that you're on. And we need people like that, not even people who are perfect, not even people who are flawless, but people who want to live lives that don't contradict the gospel that they proclaim. And so what, what kind of people do we need? Let me just summarize. Number one, Soft hearts, calloused hands, blameless character, and then finally, people with life-changing words. People who build healthy churches speak up. 
They speak up with the most important words in the universe, words that can transform and redeem lives. So let's not forget that Paul came to this city with a specific purpose, to preach the message of Jesus. He had a tender heart, calloused hands, blameless character, but that's not enough. We've all probably heard the silly line, you know, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. We've, we've probably all heard that and we all recognize the silliness and honestly the contradictory uh, nature of that, of that sentence. But uh, recognize Paul did not believe we should preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Paul understood like in order to preach the gospel at all times, you have to use words. You, you have to, to speak up and, and you see that here. Verse 8, like, we were ready with you to not only share the gospel of God. Like, he recognized that's bare minimum. Like, not only speak and share the gospel of God, but also, even more so, to share our lives with you. And then he, he goes on in verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, that we worked hard night and day, that, that we might not be a burden to any of you. But that's not where it stops. It's not like he just worked really hard and was, like, doing things for people. He goes on to say that, that he worked really hard to not be a burden while we proclaimed the gospel of God. For churches to be built, the message of Jesus has to flow from these walls, from the people in this room. We need to proclaim the message that begins with God, who created everything for his own glory, and who exists in perfect fellowship with, uh, within the, the persons of the Trinity. Um, uh, this God who then we turn to man who was created in his image to do his will, to honor him and glorify him in everything that he do. But tragically, humankind has turned their back on this perfect God and left themselves ruined. That's why the world is the way that it is right now. We are ruined in our sin, unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything about it. And yet, moving from man to Christ, God sees our condition, our helplessness, and the fact that we're ruined, and he took on human form. He became a human being with flesh and blood. He lived a perfect life that all of us should have lived. He then went to a cross to die for your sins. He was put in a grave and raised on the third day so that we might, uh, first of all, hear the statement, the debt is paid, the check is cleared, your sins are forgiven, and so that we might experience newness of life, so that we might not uh, continue to walk in the pattern of this world, but that we might be made new creatures and that he is right now preparing to make all things new, not just us as individuals. He is right now preparing a new heavens and a new earth where everything works as it's supposed to, where there are uh, no more hunger, no more tears, uh, where we live in perfect, uh, unaltered uh, un fellowship with God for all creation, and that he calls on every human to respond to this news, to respond to this news, not with just a, a check, I heard it, but to respond to this news saying, I must repent. I must turn from my sins and I must put my faith in the finished work of Jesus as the only thing that can save me. And that's the message that needs to flow from here, the, the life-changing, life-altering message of the gospel. And then we need to, 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 to also speak words that help us live out the implications of the gospel in our lives. So first of all, he's describing this message he proclaimed the message of the gospel, and then he says this in verse 12, another, another form of repetition. We exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you, and charged you, exhorted, encouraged, charged, for you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Do you hear the repetition again? Exhort, encourage, charge, 
so that your life would actually be different. So this is moving on from just receiving the gospel, but now living lives that follow Jesus, living lives that are, that are worthy of the God who's called us into his kingdom and glory. What, what does that look like for us to have these words of exhortation and, uh, and, and encouragement um, and, and to charge one another? At times what it looks like is in our relationships, moving past small talk, sarcasm, interesting stories and fads, and, and speaking meaningful words into one another's lives. Uh, calling out what we see in people. Maybe warning someone of something we might see in their life that could be a, a, a problem, an issue, a, a pattern of unrepentant sin. Um, speaking up, using our words to build up, to give life. The, the person that I, comes to my mind here is, is my wife. Like, uh, she will engage with you in small talk, okay? But she is really not interested in talking about like gas prices or the weather. She will for a bit, but she wants to, to have conversations of significance, of depth. She recognizes the power of words, uh, the power of words to build up, to, to transform. Um, she's quoting, I think it's Ephesians 4.29, all the time about not letting unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only those that are helpful for building up to our children constantly. Um, she loves to write letters. She loves to write letters to people to just encourage them in their specific season of life, to maybe call out God's work that they might not be aware of, to just let them know that they're loved and they're cared for. I love being in just maybe small group settings or counseling sessions where I'm probably just running my mouth with who knows what, and she just quietly prays and just says like one very timely, very specific word that just, just gives life, that gives grace to those who hear. We need to be people like Paul, uh, people like, like Chelsea and others of you in this room that are willing to move past sarcasm and just surface to speak words that will help one another um, live these, the kinds of lives that, that Paul's describing. I think what, what holds us back from speaking this way are two things. Number one, prayerlessness, and number two, fear. So in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, And pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Um, so so uh, what first thing that Paul is asking for are specific words. Maybe one reason we just don't have many words that are transformative, either in an evangelistic setting or even just with other believers, is just the lack of prayerlessness. Paul says, I want to speak words that matter, so I need, to, I need you to pray for me, and I need to pray in order that those words would be given to me. And then the second thing is that even if we have those words, the things that stop us from times, sometimes from speaking them is our fear. Maybe fear of being rejected as a Christian in the world, Honestly, probably in our, our setting, like some of it is just the fear of, of moving the conversation a little bit deeper, like the fear of, of like maybe making things awkward or something like that. But Paul is saying like don't, uh, that, that, that he needs boldness. We need boldness in order to share the, these kinds of words, boldness to take our conversations to a deeper place, whether with outsiders or people in the church. So we need people who understand the power of words the power of the gospel, the power of words to speak and encourage one another in our lives. Those are the kinds of, 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 of uh, words that we need to build up the church. So zooming back out, when you walk into a church, the response, not always, but at least sometimes should be, wow, look what God's done. Look at how these people live. Look at the way they relate to one another that's totally different from the world around us. What, what, what characteristics do we need to embody 
to, to be that kind of church. Number one, we need to be people with tender hearts. Number two, calloused hands. Number three, blameless lives. And number four, these, these life-changing words. Because our decaying culture desperately needs people like this. So in closing, what we need to remember, you know, these characteristics that I'm describing, we do not try to embody them so that we will be counted worthy to be a part of God's kingdom, God's church. We seek to live this way because we recognize we don't embody any of these, especially naturally, even as Christians. We don't live as we should, and yet he's called us into his kingdom anyway. Just hear these words in conclusion one more time in the bottom of verse 12. He, he charges them to walk in a manner worthy of God so that they can then participate in God's kingdom? No. Walk in a manner worthy of God um, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He calls us into his kingdom and glory, not because we meet these characteristics, but precisely because we don't. He calls us in through the grace he extends to us through Christ. And I want you to, to, to capture this grace as we get ready to come to the Lord's table this morning. But don't, don't shuffle and get ready yet. Just hear these, hear these words. I think they're significant. The grace extended to us at the Lord's table. There's, there's something Jesus says here as he prepares the Lord's table that sounds very similar to what Paul is saying here uh, as he, he describes his, his feelings towards the church. So in Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, um, and when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, here's the key phrase, I have earnestly desired, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. You hear a similar language of what Paul said earlier in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians when, when he, he described this earnest longing this affectionate heart, this, this, this eagerness that he had to share his life with, with the church. Jesus is saying so, something quite similar here. I have, I have earnestly desired to share this meal with you. Now, we should earnestly desire to participate in it because this meal for us means salvation. It strikes me as odd that Jesus would say, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal for you. Because for us, this meal means salvation. For Jesus, this meal means suffering. But what does he say about it? I earnestly desire to eat it with you. Like, imagine this, like it's the Passover meal. <laughs> a lot of people might be excited about the Passover meal. It's like a holiday in Jewish, Jewish, Jewish culture, like it's a big deal. Everybody would be excited about it except who? The Passover lamb. The, the, the lamb is not excited about the Passover meal. And yet, here we see Jesus saying, like, excitement isn't the right word, but a earnest desire to eat this meal that means suffering and death for me and salvation for you. What does that mean? It means as you come forward and take this meal that means suffering for Jesus, you need to understand this about him. Jesus is not a reluctant Savior with the same longings that Paul described for the church, that, that comes from somewhere else. That comes from the Lord Jesus himself. His intense longings for the church that led him 
to not just share himself the way Paul describes, but to give up his very life for you. He is not reluctant to be your savior. He earnestly desires to give himself to you. He earnestly desires to cover those significant areas of sin and blame that we talked about earlier. He, he earnestly desires that you would be saved and whole, even if that costs him his very life. So as you get ready to come forward to take communion then, just let me read the rest of what he goes on to say. For I tell you, I will not eat it, it, it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, I will not, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after he had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is what Jesus offers to us, not reluctantly, eagerly, that we would be saved and whole. And so if you believe that, if you believe that Jesus has given himself for you, let me invite you to come forward in just a moment and participate in communion. If, if you don't believe that, or if you've just maybe been in a long season of just unrepentance in a specific area of your life, I, I would even encourage you to just remain seated during this time. Maybe there's just a burden you need lifted off of you before you're ready to participate in communion this morning. And some of you, that burden might be just your own sins. You need to give your life to Jesus this morning. I want to pray for you just a second for that. And there are others of you that may need to just talk to someone, um, bring an area to the light, um, and, and come forward and, and, and then participate in this meal. And so let me just pray for us now. The way we take communion here, you can just come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, what Jesus has done, like we just read, will be spoken over you. You can go back to your seat, just take it kind of at your leisure whenever you feel ready, and then we'll worship together and uh, send, you, send you into the rest of your day. Let me, let me pray for us now, and then whenever you're ready, you can come forward and participate in this meal. So Father, we thank you that you sent to us an eager Savior, Savior that was gentle and lowly among us, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And you being so affectionately desirous of us, you are ready to not just share the gospel with us, Lord, but to be the gospel, uh, to give yourself for us because we had become very dear to you. I thank you that you, you call us beloved. We are dear to you. And I pray that we could just enjoy the, the gift that you give us represented in this meal. Lord, I pray for others. They just need to hear that you're not reluctant, you're not um, far away. You are ready to save, eager to save here and now. So for those that don't know you, I just pray now they would see um, all that's offered to them by putting their faith in what you've done. And I pray as we sing these words and as we participate in communion together, they would be drawn near to you. Or lastly, I just pray for those that may need to just get something in the light um, and just find just redemption and forgiveness there. Oh, would they just hear your gentle voice, not your condemning voice? Would they just hear your gentle, tender-hearted voice inviting them to be free? Lord, we love you. We thank you for these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.